Well, thank you very much, Beck, for that introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Um, but I, it's a pleasure to be here today and to see so many faces in the audience. Um, death and dying can be a difficult subject to talk about. One of our jobs this morning is to make it less, less difficult and for people to feel comfortable in this space. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Um, uh, this, this project that I've been working on um, about collecting stories from ordinary people about their experiences of death and dying is something that I've wanted to do for the last three years, and it's taken about three years to, to, to get to this stage, and I'm so excited. Um, just before we start, I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge that we are meeting on Nunga Buja. So please join me in paying our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and to leaders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to thank the State Library of WA, um, Palliative Care WA, who represented by Lana Glogowski here, and the Centre for Stories based here in the CBD, without whose hard work, commitment and enthusiastic support, not to mention funding, this event could not have taken place. A shout out also to our story collection participants, some of whom have been able to join us in the audience today. Your stories are valuable and will hopefully serve to allow others to speak about this very important topic, which affects us all. And audience, there will be time between this panel discussion and the advanced care planning workshop, which will follow, which I do hope that some, you know, you, you've signed up for. Um, for you to take a closer look at some of the collection of 13 storytellers who have shared their experiences of life and death with us for the library's archive collection. Uh, you may have seen as you came in some of their posters um, displayed on, on, in the poster, on the poster boards. And uh, there will be time if you felt the need or you wanted to be able to listen to some of those stories. There's a QR code on the bottom of each of those posters and you are able to click on that uh, QR code with your fancy cameras and, and listen to their stories. If you didn't want to do that now and you wanted to be able to listen to those stories uh, at a later stage, you can of course get onto the stories, Center for Stories com website or the State Library's website where they are also um, available for you to, to peruse at your leisure. Now, last but not least, I'd like to thank you, our audience, who have taken time out of your busy lives to join us for our, what will be an important discussion. My name, as you know, is Rita Alfred Sagar. I'm privileged to be your facilitator this morning. We have an expert panel who will be sharing their insights and experience with us today. So some brief introductions to start with. I'm sorry to say that Samar Owen, who is a professor and palliative care, uh, of palliative care um, at UWA is not able to join us today. She's had some unforeseen family health emergencies and um, was very disappointed not to be here. She will be adequately represented because a lot of the things that she was going to talk about, which are about community engagement, civic responsibility, are things that our panel can very adequately uh, talk about as well. So. Uh, so uh, my, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I'm very, very sorry that Samar can't be here, but who is here today, let me introduce you, Jane House, joins us from Tender Funerals, a not-for-profit organization, uh, committed to providing affordable funerals 
and raising death literacy by promoting greater involvement from family members in the final act of saying goodbye. Uh, Lana Glagowski, who is the woman in red on the other side of, of the seated panel, is CEO of Palliative Care WA, the peak body in, in the palliative care sector here in WA. Lana has been instrumental in promoting what is really important for me, I think, which is a joined-up interagency approach to working in the sector. And she actively seeks to share the message of advanced care planning for end-of-life care before it's too late. So that's about repeating the conversation over and over again. It's not only about having one conversation and hoping that people can hold that in their heads at the time when it's really most important. Uh, last but not least, we have Marilyn Mehta sitting in the center. And Marilyn features in our story collection, so she's a poster girl on one of the posters outside. Um, Marilyn's story was really empowering when I was recording her interview. She describes the decision that she made to stop oxygen to her mum who'd had a massive support, uh, stroke. She also shares what that meant for, her for a daughter to decide that for her mother. And she then goes on to share a near-death experience that she had herself whilst giving birth to her daughter, Jessie. So amongst the many hats Marilyn wears, she is a CEO and founder of the Metis Center, a not-for-profit working to address gender inequality, violence, injustice against women and children. So as this event is being held to launch the story collection, I'd like to open the panel with you as one of the collection participants, Marilyn. And what I'd like to find out first of all, and I'd like you to share with our audience, is why you thought it was important to share your story, why it was so important. Thank you. You switched on. Lana, why didn't you switch mics? And then you can fiddle with the mic that's not working. Can you working. guys hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. Thanks, Rita. Um, no? Is that better? Okay. Yep. Um, why did I? I? I think when I saw the, um, the message, I think it went on social media about death and dying, I instantly connected with it. I think because of the experience that I had in 2017, um, I guess helping my mother die uh, and my own death experience, which I had um, 21 years ago. So those were stories that I've sort of kept really close to my heart. And I think when that opportunity came up, I knew that it was, um, yeah, it just felt really, really right to, to be a part of that. Marilyn, just yeah. hold the mic yeah. up just a little bit closer to your mouth yeah. so that we can actually hear what you're saying because okay. I think it's very, very important. So to, just tell us a little bit about that story. Start off with what happened with mum and where you were and, you know, the decisions that you made. Um, so my mother, I, I was born in Malaysia. I came here um, as an international student, um, as a 17-year-old. So mum lived in Malaysia and continued to live in Malaysia. Um, and we got a phone call um, and mom had had a heart attack and um, was in hospital. So my sister was also living in Perth. We just took the first flight back um, 
to Malaysia and went to the hospital. And it became really clear that mom, at that point, um, she was unconscious and she was on oxygen and they were trying to figure out what was going on. And it was took a couple of days before the brain scan came back to, um, I guess, to confirm that she had probably first had a heart attack, which then led to a massive stroke. Um, and that the likelihood of her um, ever regaining consciousness was very, very small. Um, I guess to give you a bit of context about my mum, <laughs> she was an extraordinary woman who had been preparing for her death for a very, very long time. Um, I, we, all the kids grew up with the stories um, of mom's life and how she had very little choice in how she was born. <laughs> she was born into quite a traumatic um, circumstances and she had had a, a life uh, that's pretty, pretty tough life. But she knew that she had control over how she was going to die. She, she wanted control over how she was going to die and it is going to be um, her say. So she's left very clear instruction for many, many decades <laughs> growing up how she was going to do it. She had um, put aside money to buy the burial plot and had designed it, had had it all ready to go so that none of her kids had to worry. So she just left instruction on uh, basically what not to do, what, how not to leave her if situation like that ever to, were to uh, take place. Marilyn, was yeah. that culturally something that, that takes place or was that specific to mom and the character <laughs> that she was? I think it's probably a bit of both. It's, it's very unique to mom. I don't think other families do what mom, you know, does what mom does. I think she's, she's quite unique in, in, in her, her take on death and dying. And, and she was very um, clear because I think in, in, in my culture, so it's Malaysian Chinese culture, I think we, we do death very differently, but there's still also a lot of um, silence around death and dying. So, you know, parents, it's a, it's a very taboo thing, you know, we don't talk about death uh, while we are alive. So there's a lot of that going on, but mom was very, very clear about how, um, making sure that she leaves really, really clear instructions. And even though she left really clear instruction, the moment came, so she was in the hospital for 12 days, and through those 12 days, um, I guess they were, I because I had the responsibility, she left the responsibility to me, um, I think maybe because she knew that I was going to be the only one who could do it um, when, when the time comes. Um, and so I had the responsibility of, of making that decision, whatever that is. And in Malaysia, there is no you know, euthanasia law. So we had to, I, I spoke to the doctor to say, look, I, this is, this is we, we need to do something. We need to end mom's suffering. And so he pulled me aside to say, look, you know, as a doctor, he can't do it because that's against the law. But what they will do is they'll, they'll give us a private space in the hospital, in a corner, draw the curtain, and then I have to take the oxygen mask off. And then 
let mum die naturally. So that's that's what happened. Um, but I think the the experience of of taking twelve days is to make sure that everybody had a chance to say goodbye and to do it in their own way. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. Um, it's never easy to share these these moments. So thank you for for sharing that. I want to talk about that time that you did have when you were preparing, I suppose, mentally, um, but also preparing family members. How important was that time for you? Oh, it was really, really important um, because we had grandkids, we had um, my family and then her very close friends, and there were still hope, you know, in the days when mom was lying unconscious that there were there must be some miracle drug we could get hold of. There was still a lot of um, quite desperate attempts to try and keep mom alive and you know maybe there's hope of recovery and, and all of that. So we had to have all of those conversations. And I remember sitting down, this is probably a day before we made um, that decision. I remember sitting in the in the visiting area of the of the hospital and I, I asked for all of the grandkids all of the family members to be there and explain to them, remind them of who mom was, a very independent woman who, who is a doer. She uses her hand, she uses her body, she uses her mind. And that she, that we want, you know, that the, and because of the circumstances she was born into, she didn't have a say into how she was born into this world. She had a lot of, um, she didn't have a lot of control in a lot of aspects of her life. But she, her, the way she died is the only dignity that we can, that is so important. Um, I, it's, it's hard to, to describe it. It's, it's like, that is her human right. That is ultimately her right. And it is our job to make sure that we preserve her dignity in that last moment. So I was tr trying, you know, sobbing, weeping, trying to, to explain to my nephews and nieces that that is so important, that she's still here and we have, we have to act in, you know, in, in a way that, that dignifies her. So that was so important that we had the time, we had the 12 days in the hospital to do that. And everybody, I think, after that conversation, realized that we had to say goodbye, yeah. and that was the right thing to do. And I think in, in your interview, I, th I seem to remember that you talked about it, that you absolutely felt that it was an act of honor it was honouring your mother to be able to make that final decision. It must have been a hard decision, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was very hard. It was hard, and I, I, think, I think the reason why I wanted to share my story is even though my mum left clear instructions, you know, there was no doubt um, what she wanted. Even then, it was so hard to, to be the person to make that decision, to take the oxygen of my mother's, you know, uh, face and knowing that that is that final act. But it was so clear. It was so clear because mom had 
communicate it so clearly for so long and consistently. Uh, and it was the best thing I could do for her at that point in time. And it is still clear for me now, um, you know, coming up six years after. So I think, yeah, it is, mm. it is an honour. It is a, an act of honour. And I think part of um, the whole process is how you're able to live with something afterwards, after the event. And so how, di how did the grandchildren cope with that act and then, you know, the, 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 everything that then surrounds death and saying goodbye and, and then moving forward? How did that happen? Um, I think we had, <laughs> I remember I had Jessie, my, my daughter, with me, and she had witnessed the whole process of, I guess, my, the, the position I was in, you know, having to make the decision and then having to bring the whole family along and, and the friends along. Um, How old was Jessie? Jessie, 2017, that would have been about 16, 15, 16. Um, and so Jess witnessed the whole the whole um, process, and after Mom had taken her last breath, and sort of with that moment, I think it was soon after that, Jess sort of just held my hand, and she said, "Mom, don't worry, I've got your back." <laughs> I think that was such a such a powerful moment for me. Um, knowing that she, she got it, she, she understood that at that age um, how difficult that is and how important it is to get it right. Um, yeah. and, and I think having that conversation was important, helping all the grandkids, all the, the you know, close friends, family, to, to say goodbye and, and then start that grieving process. I think that was, yeah, I think everyone, you know, she's still, present. She's so present. She's a larger than life person and she still remains so. Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the things that, that does take place in society um, is, is that we try and protect each other and we definitely try and protect our children from what we see as this momentous, you know, awful thing that happens when we're losing someone. But I, I, would, I would agree with you that it, it's about passing on that normalization of the end of life to the next generation and how important that is for them to see it early and learn early rather than be protected from it until they have to deal with it themselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, I think we, need to, we need to have those conversations with our kids, our you know, children, um, and at the right age-appropriate way, I think we need to have those conversations and, and, and give them the skills and the tools and, and normalize those conversations because death strikes at any time and we can't predict when that, that arrives. Yeah. Yep. Now, I'm going to move on slightly um, to... Uh, no, no, stick with that, that microphone. You've just found out how to work it, so I'm, <laughs> I'm sticking with you. Um, I, I, I now just want to talk... Thank you for sharing that, that Mum. I, I want to now talk about the other story that you told within the interview that we did, which was really about your own near-death experience. Do you want to share that with our audience? Yeah, yeah, um, might as well. <laughs> um, so I, so Jessie, 
uh, who just turned 21. Um, so when I was pregnant with Jesse, I think it was about 38 weeks, I had um, preeclampsia, so very high blood pressure, um, dangerously high blood pressure, and was rushed to hospital. And because of um, being first pregnancy, um, Jess's birth was very, very fast. It happened really quickly, and as a result, I had retained placenta, and Jess pretty much scratched me all the way down. So I just, I remember just holding <laughs> Jess in my arms, had just given birth, and just feeling really dizzy, um, and then just passed out. So I had lost a huge amount of blood, um, probably about three and a half liters of blood, um, and I remember that moment of just spinning and just very, very distinctly this snap. And it is such a clear moment where I realized that I had just died. And it's like all of me, all of my consciousness was in this tiniest little dot. And I was just floating in space. And it was such such a blissful moment. It was, um, and I was sort of just floating <laughs> in this, this, this space um, for I don't know how long. And then I just had a thought. I just remember that I had just given birth. <laughs> I just said hello to my beautiful baby and then just the instinct of, I think it's maternal instinct, just say, look, I cannot, cannot leave my my newborn child without a mother. And so I have to, find, have to find a way to get back. Um, but the last thought I had was, I wonder if I would remember this when I, if I ever made it back. And when I woke up in the hospital, um, I do remember, I, you know, I did remember. That was the first thing that came to mind is that I remembered. I guess that experience is in a way, I remember sharing my death experience with a couple of people soon after and got very dismissed. Oh, you know, it must be the gas or it must be this, it must be that. So I sort of just kept that to myself for a number of years <laughs> and then eventually wrote about it. And, but when I think about what that meant for me is, I guess it changes how I feel about death itself, and it removed, I guess, the, the element of fear for me, I think, um, and I have held that, I think it's, it has been a life-changing moment, I think, because since then, I guess I lived life as, you know, this is, this is just a bonus time I have, um, and it allowed me to talk about death and dying even more comfortably. Um, yeah, so that's... The way you're talking about that, you know, uh, to me, it, it comes across that there's, there's a whole kind of empowerment that took place where you actually were able to embrace death. You talked about bliss, which I thought was curious when I, when I you know, was interviewing you. This, this moment of pure bliss where everything else, where you're maybe transitioning worlds, I, I, I don't know, um, and, and then this moment of empowerment where you, you decided, you chose, and you were able to. 
and that's not obviously given to everybody, but that you were able to do that. Describe that a little bit more for us and, and, and how that made you feel afterwards. Mm. Um, it, was <laughs> it was, I think, that, that moment of that, that experience of being in that tiniest little dot floating in space is all, you know, you are, you are so, the, the purity of your existence, I think, you know, people talk about consciousness. I think that might be what it is. I'm not sure. Um, I still don't really know what happens after death. <laughs> but I think just being able to have that experience um, and coming back and choosing to come back because I think just the, the sense of the instinct of needing to come back for my child. Um, I think it was... And being able to come back and being able to raise my child, who's just turned 21, and being able to share that story with Jesse. Uh, so as soon as Jess was, I think, turned 18 or whatever age that you, you could donate blood, Jess had been a regular donation, you know, donate blood. With, um, because she knew that she, you know, I guess she had a mum because of the, the, the people who donated blood. So I think there is that, that continuity of choice of the things that we do. And I often think about how, when, I, when you talk about empowering, I think it's, it's just having that knowledge and having those conversations is so important. And we, we need to have that with our kids because they are, you know, I think it's, it's, it's such a... We're, we're giving them that power mm. in, in being able to talk about it, I think, in ways that we don't even understand. Um, yeah, so both, both have been really empowering. And that, that sense of agency and the preciousness of that gets passed down too. And it's not just the fear. I think the complexity of death and dying, of course, it's not, you know, it's painful, it's difficult. But I think there is so much that we miss when we, when we don't have those conversations. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Lana, I'm going to bring you in here, if I may. And uh, you talk a lot about having those conversations, having them regularly, having them early. And I, and, and I want you to kind of link that into um, Marilyn's last point about how you feel that that actually empowers people to be able to look at their own deaths and prepare for them. Can you hear me now? Beautiful. Um, so can I start out by sharing conversations that I have with my family? So um, like you, Marilyn, I've got two 21-year-olds and a 25-year-old. And because of the work that I do with Palliative Care WA, I've got really comfortable in, in talking to my kids about the fact that I will die, that there will be a point you know, and maybe soon, maybe later, um, where, where I will die. And it's interesting, um, initially my kids were like, oh, really? Um, you know, do we have to talk about this? You know, this is a bit morbid, isn't it? Um, but as time has gone on, my kids have got used to it, and that's oh, mum's doing the death talk again. Um <laughs> And, and Marilyn, I really relate to what you're saying. I think it really empowers my kids because 
in the back of their head, there's a, a seed that's been planted that addresses that question of mortality and they are, they are getting their head around the fact that their mum and dad will die um, at some stage and potentially, you know, well, they will die too, hopefully a long way down the track. But it's recognising our mor mortality. Um, and I think in the work that we do at PCWA, that's essentially what we're trying to address, is that many people in the WA community don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. It's like, ugh, it's that, <laughs> it's that awful thought over there that I, I'm not going to address. Um, and that's all very fine and good until something happens to a family member. Um, and we see and hear about this often. So, like your mum, Marilyn, you know, a heart attack, a stroke, an accident, someone, some loved member of your family ends up in hospital um, in, in a critical situation. And then we have, you know, son flying in from London, daughter flying in from Paris, other daughter who's been at home in Meriden, um, looking after mum, seeing mum's demise, having to provide that amazing care and support. But what happens in the hospital scenario is that you get the, the clinical input from the team, which, you know, may be not positive, but because they haven't had these conversations, son who's jetted in from London says, do everything. Do everything for my mum. I cannot countenance my mum dying. Daughter who's jetted in from Paris says, oh, there must be something that you can do. Medical science is amazing. You know, so you've got these, this, the, the son and the daughter who are saying, give mum everything. And so, Lana, as an educator, yep. if I can just, just hop in there, as an educator, how do you turn those conversations around? Because we do live in a death-denying society. We do have the modern medicine to be able to prolong life. Mm. And that's a really powerful argument. So, that's what I was getting to, Rita. <laughs> There was, a there was an end point. So, daughter who lives in Meriden, who's been caring for her mum, hopefully has engaged her mum in advanced care planning. So, hopefully daughter and mum have had conversations about what mum wants. Um, and, and we recognise that there's a huge continuum. At one end of the continuum, mum may say, look, I want everything. I want you to keep me around for as long as you possibly can. I don't care what the, the um, implications of that medical treatment is. I'm, I'm not ready to die. So that's at one end of the continuum. At the other end of the continuum, mum may say, look, I'm 80, I've had a fabulous life, I've managed these chronic diseases for five years, I've had enough, um, I'm ready to go. Um, she may not qualify for um, voluntary assisted dying because we know that there's very restrictive criteria around that. But she may say in her advanced care planning processes, she may say, look, if 
I have a heart attack, if I have a stroke, if I have some significant medical um, incident, then I want you to let me go. And in WA, you can do that. You can say, I do not want any life-sustaining treatment. I want palliative care. I want you to manage my pain and symptoms as much as you can, but I want you to let me go. And, and from an educative perspective, that's what Palliative Care WA is about, is about educating people to empower people to make these really important decisions so that the son that's jetting in from London and the daughter that's jetting in from Paris um, understands what their um, mum wants. Mm. And hopefully in that advanced care planning process, they've had conversations, you know, FaceTime, Zoom, Teams. Um, if they haven't been able to have the conversations when son and daughter have been in WA, at least mum has been able to articulate her wishes, whatever they are. Um, and certainly in our experience, if those conversations have been had, it makes the decision process so much easier. Mm -hmm. The decision process is for the medical team so much easier because they've got clear direction. Um, it doesn't mean that it's easy. It's hard. This stuff is really hard mm -hmm. and it's complex. And even having done advanced care planning doesn't necessarily mean that the, the end is going to go quite as the, as the person would have liked. Um, you know, nothing's foolproof, nothing's 100%. Um, so, Lana, one of the things that I've come across, certainly, and I'm sure you've come across as well, is that palliative care gets a really bad press. So most people kind of think, okay, that means I'm in, you know, at death's door, and, you know, the medical profession have done with me, so I'm in the palliative care bin. Um, and that's one of the messages that actually you are trying to get across that palliative care doesn't mean the end of the line. And it may be a process that allows support and help, you know, for, for, for much longer. And it might be a much better experience. Talk y to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So palliative care ideally, um, it kicks in at point of diagnosis. So... You know, as an ageing population, you know, most of us will develop at least one chronic disease before we die. And unfortunately, many of us, because we're living so much longer, potentially will have several, many chronic diseases that, that we will be managing. Um, so um, the notion is that Palliative care kicks in at the point of diagnosis of a life-limiting illness. So you may manage chronic disease for a very long time and then your treating team might say, look, we're at the point now where we recognise that you may have 12 months to live. That's the point where palliative care should kick in. Unfortunately for many people, for a multitude of reasons, resistance to palliative care, not understanding how to access palliative care. Often palliative care doesn't, cut, doesn't become available to people um, when they are actively dying. 
So mm. that feeds into that notion, oh, once I get referred to palliative care, that means I'm going to die tomorrow. Palliative care, philosophically, is holistic. Yep. It's about, it's actually about maximising life and living and not so much about the death and the dying. So good quality palliative care provides spiritual support to people, um, be you religious or not. Um, social work support to you and the family. Um, engagement with the family in the, in the caring of a person for their last stage of life. And of course the clinical care. But, I, but I, I think it's really important that we recognise that clinical care is a component of palliative care. It is not, it's not the, the total of palliative care. Palliative care is about life and living and maximising that quality of life for the last stage of life. So, Lana, Samar, if she'd been here, she, was be, she would have been talking a lot about the compassionate community model. And I'd really like for you to share that with our audience, what that means. So, if you think about the fact that you may have a life-limiting diagnosis, so, you know, potentially 12 or 18 months to live, we know that most people want to die at home given the choice, like not many of us want to die in a clinical facility like a, hosp a hospital. So most people want to be cared for at home. And what we recognise is that that places a huge burden on the carer. So husband, wife, daughter, son, um, whoever is going to stand up and, and take on that role of being the primary caregiver. That's a huge burden for that person. We recognise that the caring role is 24-7 um, for, the, for the length of that person's tra life trajectory. Um, and unfortunately, many carers burn out in that process. We know that. Um, I can see Margaret nodding her head there. We know that, that often what happens is the carer goes, I just can't do it anymore. And you know what happens to the person? They get taken to hospital because that's our default position. So what Samar um, has been doing in her amazing work is recognising that in some ways we need to go back to what happened sort of a few decades ago, that when someone was dying in community, the community activated and supported the family and very much the carer. So the Compassionate Communities is like a wraparound um, service around um, someone who was dying in a family. Um, and the Compassionate Communities talks about that, um, you know, it's a bit like it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to allow someone to have the be best death possible. So it's about people putting up their hand and saying, I'll do, the, I'll do the medication run to the pharmacy. I will put the bins out. Um, I will mow the lawn. Um, I will, you know, do the myriad of jobs that need to happen to sustain um, yep. a family and a home while someone is actively dying. And sometimes it's those small things that, are, that, that make up the heroic end of life 
you know, sort of journey, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think for many people, um, the people who are dying, who are able to, to stay at home, you know what it does for them? It makes them feel loved. And that is so powerful, that their community is willing to um, stand up and do what they can to help them. What Samar has been doing is this amazing piece of work um, around a program called Community Connectors. So what she has recognised in her research is that loneliness is at pandemic levels in our community, particularly for older people. And, you know, perhaps if people have had a really long journey with deteriorating health, they've become less able to get out and about and connect with their community. So they stay at home for long periods of time. And so they lose connection with those, those, those informal and formal connections in their community. So what Samar's project has demonstrated is that she trains up these community connectors. So these are often older people, retired, semi-retired. Maybe they've had experience of supporting someone who has died in their family. And they put up their hand to say, I'm willing to help someone else. And so they go into the family. They don't do the doing. They don't do the mowing of the lawns and the pushing, putting out of the rubbish bins and the medication runs. They facilitate. So they talk to the person who was unwell. Okay, so who has been important in your network over the last few years? You know, were you connected with the, the book club, the bowling group, the service club? And, you know, who of your family is still around and potentially able to connect? So they do the connecting, so that's why they're called community connectors. They facilitate um, these people coming into the home. They might set up a roster. They may do some of those facilitative tasks. But what they do is help um, re-energise that network mm -hmm. so that the, the people can stay at home um, potentially until they die. So they can stay in the place that they know and love they can have their neighbours about them. They can have the dog beside the bed. They can have the cat at the end of the bed. They can be in the place that's their, their castle. And, and, and that's the most important thing that I think, you know, uh, uh, comes out from that message, which is that there needs to be responsibility, not just from family, not just personal responsibility, but also civic and community responsibility. And I'd like to bring Jane, Jane, you in here, because... Tender Funerals is all about involving the family and the community to give back, really, isn't it? So t share a little bit about Tender Funerals story. Sure. Yeah, so much is resonating there with what Lana's been talking about. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background about Tender, uh, Tender Funerals started in Port Kembla in New South Wales about six years ago. And it was started by a community organisation, a local community association, uh, when they recognised that there was a need in the community for more affordable funerals, but also for more family involvement. 
and they then had um, one of their, their own caretaker that looked after the community centre was diagnosed with a terminal illness and they decided he, he didn't have a big family and he certainly had no money. Um, so they decided to take care of him themselves. And there's actually a wonderful documentary about that story which we're having a screening of soon. So if you want to know more about that, come and see me afterwards. Um, so Tender Funerals in Port Kembla has been running successfully. Now it's a not-for-profit model. Um, for six years and they've created a, now a social franchise and there's many communities around Australia, um, including here in Perth. Um, I'm part of a group that's trying to bring that model to WA. Um, we're not operational yet. Uh, we are still in the process of um, fundraising and um, really planning and working out um, our financial viability in a city context as opposed to in New South Wales, it's in a regional area. Um, so with a social enterprise, um, it's, it's more about working with the aim of having a long-term social impact rather than just making a profit. Um, and yes, it, it's a community-led model, so it... Um, you know, we would have um, a small team of paid staff, but we would also have an annual volunteer intake. Um, and we're really about connecting people with organisations in their community that might may be able to assist them and volunteer services as well. So going back to that issue of um, the increased isolation and loneliness, I think it would be fantastic if people could go to their local funeral provider when their loved one dies and and have that community connector type person say well okay um, what do you need what sort of funeral do you want and let's try and find a way that you can make that happen not we're going to give you this service it's like let, let's help you uh, create the funeral yourself that you that you want to have. Jane, one of the things that we very rarely talk about is the expense of funerals yeah. and the funeral business. Mm -hmm. And that really is a worry, especially for older people, um, but also for families who may not be able to, to, to be able to do, you know, what they think they need to do. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really difficult. And I think, um, you know, the stan standard funeral companies and, you know, don't get me wrong, I think, you know, I've met lots of people working in the funeral industry in the last few years and they're amazing and um, they do an incredible job. Um, but the, the business model that they're operating under, um, you know, as you're probably aware, um, a good portion of funeral homes are owned by global multinational organisations that have to satisfy their shareholders and, you know, they have to operate in a way that is um, profitable for them. So, um, that's that's to be expected, but for the consumer or for you know a grieving family, that can present some real challenges. Um, so with tender, the um, you know any kind of goods like um, you know caskets and coffins and things like that would um, we would not be charging any um, profit on those items. Um, 
There's some costs that we can't control, of course, around cremations and burials and things like that. But um, with a lot of standard funeral companies, you have you know, a service fee and that, that's really, I mean, funeral companies are being a lot more transparent these days about their pricing. Um, but, um, you know, as I said, they still have to make a profit, so they generally charge a service fee. Um, and that can sometimes make things unaffordable for people, along with all the markups on, on coffins and the like. One of the things that came out very strongly in the, in the documentary film that was shown on the ABC, I think, um, was how you're all actually educating people about that death process, There's that final goodbye, where sometimes it's very dislocated because, you know, the body is in a funeral home, you've already started calling it the body. Um, and, and part of Tender's approach is really to bring the family back into that last end stage. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, um, and I'll just add, if they want, you know, um, it's totally up to the family what they want to do, but... Um, the experience at Port Kembla has been that when families are involved in caring for the body, um, that that is, it really supports a very healthy bereavement. And, you know, when somebody is just whisked off very quickly, there's sometimes not the proper chance to say goodbye. And if you don't have time with the body, it just adds to that um, sort of mystery of, of what it's all about. You know, one minute someone's here and one minute they're gone. So they have found that bringing families into the mortuary and being supported to uh, wash and dress the body or perhaps um, have a cold plate, a cooling plate, which allows you to keep the body at home for a few days, um, all of this can be done by, by the family themselves, but because people don't know what they can and can't do, um, you know, Tender has played an important role in the Port Gambler community in, in showing people what they can do, and often that can mean getting them started in the mortuary, and then the experience has been that the families will say, oh, it's okay, you can go now, we've got this, because it's, it's not as scary as, as one might think, because that is their loved one, you know, they know that person. And, um, and children as well um, have no problem generally with being in the mortuary and that has been very helpful. Um, you know, people don't know what they don't know, including me, I might say. Um, and Rita, I just had a conversation a couple of days ago um, and I was thinking about you, Lana, too. I had a woman ring me whose brother was in a hospice and he had only a couple of days left to go. And she, it was such a moving conversation because, um, not only because she was wanting to honour his uh, wishes about exactly what happened to his body after he died, um, but because she was on the phone talking to me instead of being with him with questions that, you know, as a society we, we should have the answers to. Basic questions like, will I be allowed to dress him? You know, um, who will I ask to help wash the body? Um, where will they take him? When will they take him? 
And I just thought, yeah, it was, it was really sad. You know, she, she thought he was going to have to have an autopsy, which absolutely he wouldn't have to. There was a lot of anxiety there. Um, so, you know, the more we can have these conversations and get the death literacy out there, the better. Um, something else that I wanted to add, Rita, was just, you know, about the power of, of choice and, mm. and having the time to, to really say goodbye properly. Um, one of the things that um, Tender wants to support is working with a lot of different sections of our community as well. Um, so, uh, you know, that means First Nations communities, multicultural communities, um, um, uh, the LGBTQI community, um, all of these groups, you know, people with disabilities, they have their own um, particular needs around um, funerals and death and body care. Um, and so we want to be able to honour all of those and connect people with their own um, so that they can look after their own when they die and they don't feel that they have to go to a stranger. So, you know, hopefully we'll be part of the Perth community soon and we can, we can help people with that. So, yeah... Um, and if there's anybody here in the room um, from any of those communities that you've had experience um, with funeral companies here or you, you have some thoughts around that, please do come and see me later because at the moment, um, you know, we're a small group of volunteers and we're really wanting to uh, connect with as many people around those needs as possible. Thank you, Jane. I'm, I'm glad that you said that because I'd, I'd actually like to open the conversation up now to, to our audience. Uh, you've heard a lot of different uh, views, a lot of different experiences. What we would like to hear from you now is some of your thoughts about what you've heard today, some of the questions that you might have, might have and that have not, you've not had answered before. Um, and I'd really like you to be able to give your own thoughts and, and perhaps share a story. So I know that we have a, a roving mic that we will be using. And I think Ruben was going to also come and help. So Ruben, if you'd like to come down. This is my 14-year-old who came in late, but anyway. Um, and I've got a question right, um, right at the back. Lady at the back there, uh, if you'd like to... Get that one for me back. Seeing that's working. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity to ask the questions. Um, I'm not okay about anything that's being discussed, but that's why I'm here. Uh, so thank you for that, and please excuse me. Um, one category that hasn't been mentioned is um, people in residential aged care. So it, it does fall under uh, medical care, but specifically um, when a family member is under a guardianship. Um, so this is all about empowerment and um, choices and the families of people who are under guardianship have no choices, no input, no empowerment. In fact, it's quite the opposite and it's humiliating and devastating 
and we don't have the opportunity to participate, to help our parents make those choices. We know what their wishes were. My mum my was a bit of a, um, a, sorry, like Marilyn's mother, not morbid about it, but practical and wanted to make it known, but never put it in writing. But it was always a conversation that was had, but it counts for nothing when a guardian is involved. And, um, and I'm right in the thick of that at the moment. My girlfriend, friend here, um, we came together. Her mum has passed away and she endured that experience without having any input, any notification, nothing. Just absolutely appalling. And my mum is coming into that place and I'm fearful because I know um, what the restrictions are and, um, yeah. Um, really, really so important thank issue. You. Thank you thank very you. much for raising that. Lana, can I ask you to comment, quite short comment, please? From yeah. You. So, look, my heart goes out to you. Um, that, that must be um, a terrible, terrible um, situation to endure. So I'm really sorry to hear um, about that. Without going into the details of your personal particular circumstance, I think the point that you made that's a really critical one is picking up the notion about um, writing your wishes, um, completing the documentation. So we've developed a model within palliative care. Sorry, Rita, were you just a couple of sentences? Were just you? a yeah, just a couple of sentences. <laughs> if I can't. You can. I can't do so, a couple so of I sentences. So I think the important <laughs> the important thing there is to to be able to write. Yes. So your if wishes. I could just if I could just very briefly share with you, and you you can pick up some resources from us as you leave this forum this morning. But we have a model that talks about think, talk, write, share. So think, think, reflect about what your wishes are. Talk, talk to members of your family, talk to your treating team, to your GP, to your community, but then write, write down those wishes. And it needn't be in a in a legal document, doesn't necessarily have to be an enduring power of attorney or an enduring power of guardianship. You can write down your wishes in a common law directive. So it can be a high level, this is what my wishes are for the last stage of my life. Mm. So I'll, I'll come back to you. So um, write and then share. So the other problem we have is people who write their wishes and then put it on the top shelf in their study and nobody gets access to that documentation. So my health record, give copies to your GP, give copies to your hospital, they can upload them electronically now. Mm. So if you go as far as writing your documentation, please make sure you share it. Yeah. One of the things I think that I picked up from you was that... <coughs> You know, th th there's a lot of feeling there, obviously, but, but there may be lots of resources available, but sometimes there's such a plethora of resources that we just don't know where to go next or who to go to, or you've talked to too many people. One of the things I wanted you to talk about, Lana, very quickly, if you could, is, is about the PAL, Pal Care Helpline, 
which is available. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so we've been funded by WA Health to provide um, a palliative care helpline. So again, on the table as you leave, please pick up a, a copy of our poster promoting that service. So it's available every day of the year, nine till five, seven days a week. So it's about reflecting our conversation today about recognising that community has such an incredibly important role in the delivery of palliative care and support over the last stage of life. So that, that helpline is not about providing clinical information, it's, providing, it's about providing information, um, helping people to navigate through what can sometimes be a complex situation. It's about a listening ear. Yeah. Someone who's at the end of that phone, and we mostly have palliative care nurses um, providing that service and or people who've provided pastoral care. So people have had decades of experience in this space who can listen, who can support, and hopefully empower you, the caller, um, to take those next and important steps. So it's not about the helpline doing, it's about listening, supporting and empowering. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively new service, so it's not really um, well known in the broader community. So if I could encourage you to take some posters, share it around your network, because who knows when you or them may need a, a, a listening ear moving forward. I, I see that you've still got your hand up, but there are a couple of other people as well. So can I come back to you? and then just ask the lady with, with the glasses just in the middle to, to speak. The one with the floral, yeah, floral shirt, purple hair. Me. Fabulous oh. purple hair. <laughs> Once you said that, I knew how you meant. <laughs> um, I just want to follow on from, from a little bit from that. Um, I'm a trained volunteer with Amana, the nursing home set. Um, I'm a NODAC, which is a no one dies alone companion. So we are trained to go in and sit with people who are in their end stage, uh, who have no family or their family are overseas, in the bush, can't get there in time. Um, it's been going for a couple of years. It started just before COVID and we had to put it on hold. So we're now up. We're always looking for volunteers who want to train to be part of it. But I found that, I get a bit emotional about it as well. Um, I find that amazing to be able to sit with someone who has no one in their last end stages. And I have been with a number of people now that have passed while I've been there. Um, so that, that's something that's out there as well that people don't know about. It's only in Amana at the moment, but we are hoping to move it out into all the nursing homes and all the you know, places like that where there are people who have no, no one. I also would like to agree with you about being with your mother when you passed. I was the same. I was the primary caregiver. Um, lots of drama with family. And um, my mum had a heart attack. It was just before we were able to do an advanced health care... No, um, what's it called? Didn't you? An advanced health directive? No, we had done all of that. It's... Um, oh, God, I've got... <laughs> to give permission for her... We resuscitated, that's what I was looking for. DNR, DNR. Um, I think my mother must have realised that, you know, she'd agreed to it and everything, and she had a heart attack the day we were going in to sign it. 
she went to hospital. I managed to get there in time. I was able to sit with her while she passed. But my brother was the one that got hysterical and wanted to know why we didn't do stuff, why, we didn't, why wasn't she on life support, and we tried to explain that. When we were able to get him to come in and see her and say goodbye to her, everybody calmed down and it was all okay. But it was the most amazing experience to sit there with her and I knew she'd gone. And that's how it is, when, what, what made me become a NODAC. So just so that people know that that is there. And if you go into a mana care, into care, you are given information about that and you have an interview yourself, the person who is passing or, you know, is going into care, so that you can sign a form to say, yes, I would like a NODAC to be with me. So, so people don't know about it. So just so that you're aware that Thank eventually you. it Thank will be around. Thank you for sharing that. So gentlemen at the back. Hello, um, my name's James, I'm from Basildon Hospice Care, um, and hello Lana, this question is actually directed to you, but the rest of the panel can have a crack too. Um, it was about your comment around it takes a village to raise a child equally at the end of life, it takes a village to um, ensure that somebody has a you know, quality end of life journey. Now we know that working from a community development perspective, and I love the Community Connected Program, uh, I think it's really important, but you've got to have something to get people to. Um, and that's probably in service delivery areas. But there are, in each community, there's, they can be strong. They might not be as strong as other areas. Um, where Bustleton Hospice is funded predominantly from the community. Um, we don't take a skerrick of money from government. Well, we'd love to. Um, but it's, it's fully community funded. Where's the responsibility of government here? Um, they've known about this, uh, the baby boomers and the wave of demographic coming towards end of life. Where's the responsibility? Um, and are they in this space? Is it coordinated? Is there effective policy? Um, who do we speak to? Do we come through Pell Care? Love your work, Jane. I think it's wonderful. Thank you very much for that, James. And I think that's a really important point, which is that at what point do these conversations translate into policy and, and, and government feedback, you know, and, and, and governments to get behind this, because death, death is something which is a, is, and I think Samar talks about this, which is that it's something personal, but with a huge social component. And I think that that's, 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 that's really important to take away from here, that, that death is not only a personal thing, it has a massive social component to it. Any other questions? Rita, Rita could I just respond to yeah, James? Sure question just yep. to reassure you that WA Health is absolutely on the Compassionate Community page and in fact have, um, have financially supported some of Samar's work. Um, I think the thing that Samar would say is that if because it's so community based actually local government is where we need to be working in terms mm. of compassionate communities. So Samar um, is working with the Bunbury City Council around developing a compassionate yep. community charter. Um, and Samar is suggesting that it's local government is the, is the tier of government that's, so, that's better con connected with local communities. Um, you know, WA Health is, um, you know, systems-wide and WA-wide, and they're very philosophically supported and the policy development is happening, but it's really local governments that we need to connect with and we need to start, I think, having a conversation with them about developing 
um, com communi compassionate community charters. So it's about them saying we have a role to play in this space and they've got community development staff that can work with organisations like um, tender funerals like us to facilitate that work at the community level. Thank you. Thank you very much. I saw a hand raised just there in the middle on the right-hand side, yeah. Hello. Still working? Hi. Okay, hi. Um, my name's Sam. Um, I'm a psychotherapist. I run a YouTube and a small company uh, called Taboo Education. We deal with all these sorts of, of issues. And my, my, I'm trying to get people between the ages of 25 and 40 to get off their butts and actually talk about this. They're coming into that age where they've got... Uh, they've started to get children, they've got a house, and now they're thinking nothing will ever happen to me but without realising they, they could drop dead at any moment. Um, so my question, and I'll put this towards you guys, I've got my own thoughts on it. Um, by the way, if you'd like a brochure or anything, come find me. Uh, you guys, is how to get young people their career, they're in the middle of kids, they're very, very busy, they don't want to think about it how your perspective about it when they fear it themselves. Great. Thank you, Sam. Uh, so there's obviously a problem with that microphone. Um, so just, just, to, just to kind of just, just recap on your question, I think what you're asking the panel is how do we get younger members of the community actually involved in, in this supportive network? Can I ask Jane? Jane, do you have any ideas in terms of the community work that you are doing with tender funerals? Um, look, it's a good question, and it's a really hard question to answer because um, I think it, you know young people generally, um, you know, are, it's not something that they want to talk about, um, and it can be quite confronting um, when their parents and grandparents want to talk about it. Um, but again, I think if you have a more kind of holistic model like the compassionate communities and where if you have, you know, a, a funeral service that where families are allowed to come into a mortuary space and the like, um, then you just, you know, you have more general exposure to to it and, and just normalising the conversation at home, um, you know, with young children, I think that will have an impact on on young people as as they as they grow, and so that they can have a role in a supportive community. I yeah. think we've, we've got we time tried. only for just one or two extra questions. Um, so, Ruben, while you're there, could you just uh, give the mic to lady in the middle there? Uh, I've got Beth, we might I we might just need to change that mic around. Thank you. Hi. Uh, of um, one thing that we haven't touched upon today, and I've really appreciated the talk about dying from. Our panel but one thing we haven't talked about is voluntary assisted dying and I had a recent experience personally with it um, with my mother 
I hate public speaking, but I wanted to share this. One, it was a really fantastic experience. Um, her whole family was together with her, including uh, myself and my son. It was very beautiful. I know there are a lot of restrictions around voluntary assisted dying, and I feel very fortunate to have um, uh, a sister who's kind of like very pushy, who identified that um, you have to go through a very specific process of requesting it. And I guess I wanted to share this because I, from my perspective, it's like you don't get to hear about it or find out about it until you ask for it. And it has to be asked for in a very specific way. So I think there are many, many people out there who know about it in theory and it's been um, available in Perth and it's a um, legal, um, fully okay thing to do. But there are so many restrictions about how people talk about it and what's... Um, uh, what you say, but really, I guess, you have to go to your GP and you have to request it in very clear language and then they have to get another um, qualified registered person in voluntary assisted dying to then be the second administrative person um, and it goes from there and, yep, I just wanted to put it out there. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. I'm going to have to bring this, I, I could ask you for lots of questions and I'm sure you'd have them, but I'm going to have to bring this panel to a close. Um, time, as always, ticks away. I'd like to thank all our panellists. Please don't think that they're going to run away. They are going to be around. We've got a break until for about half an hour before the next session, so we can pick up some of the very important conversations that have been started here. Our panel will be around. Um, I'm told that our next session, which is the Advanced Care Planning Workshop, um, is booked out for today, which we're very happy about, but for those who aren't able to attend today, please do go onto the uh, Palliative Care WA website and on their events section, you will be able to book yourself in. I do recommend that people do book themselves into that advanced care planning workshop. It answers a lot of questions. It allows people to prepare and I guarantee that you will find it worthwhile. Just a quick reminder that we're also hosting a death cafe later on at 2.30 at the Alex Hotel, which is just a few moments away from this building. If you haven't been to one before or haven't bought a ticket yet, our helpers at the desk at the door can book you in. And the Death Cafe, if you've never been to one, is an opportunity to ask questions, share experiences in a safe, supportive environment over a cup of coffee and a cup of, and a cake. Um, I'll be there. I hope you'll, you'll, you'll join me. And I'd just like to say thank you very much. So please, a huge thank you to our panelists. An audience, thank you very much for being here today.